If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. I praise the Lord also that while I'm up here talking, the kids know what to do and you parents followed along on the screen. So children, you were dismissed for junior church and uh, we are looking at Exodus chapter 25 and we'll be in verse 10 this morning as we study the Ark of the Covenant. We're continuing this series in the book of Exodus and this mini-series in particular called Tabernacle. And so hopefully by now you've been able to find Exodus 25. If you've been coming each Sunday, you knew where we were going. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And we'll be reading verses 10 through 22. They are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Also, make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. I will meet with you there, above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you would speak to us through your word, that you would meet with us, and Lord, that we would know you more as a result of studying Exodus 25 together. God, would you use me, hide me behind your word and your cross, and Lord, may uh, the Holy Spirit move among us, uh, just drawing people's hearts, convicting of sin, and reminding us of your goodness and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our family recently moved in town, uh, and this is about a year ago, actually, and we had lots of boxes, all right? And so we packed up all these boxes of our possessions, and we were carrying them from one house to the other. But there was, there was one box that didn't go on the truck. You guys know what I'm talking about if you've ever moved before. You've got some special items, perhaps, that are in the box, things that are of either value or hard to replace, And that box didn't go with the common boxes on the truck. It wasn't carried in and out by so many of you who very graciously helped us move those boxes. It was in 
my possession at all times in the car and then was the last one in and placed in a special place. And if we ever had a flood or a hurricane or something that would happen, that box would be important. I'd go get that box and it has things, you know, the kinds of things I'm thinking of, like passports and birth certificates. And, you know, just uh, maybe there's a love note that I've written Christina, or there's a, a piece of jewelry that's uh, sentimental value far exceeds its intrinsic value. Those kinds of things that are not us, but they represent us in a very powerful way and are kind of irreplaceable. Now, that analogy pales in comparison, but it begins to help you understand what we're talking about here is a box. It's a holy box, a special box that had special contents, the contents of which were not God, but they were special and irreplaceable. And so we considered this Ark of the Covenant. The word Ark is an old English word for box. That's why I kind of bring this illustration into play. It just literally means box. So like the Noah's Ark was like a giant floating box, okay? This gives us the idea. The box was not God himself, but it represented God's presence on earth. In our outline today, there are only two points. And so I wanted to try and keep it very simple for us. We're going to consider just first of all the physical features of the Ark of the Covenant and then spend time discovering its significance. So first of all, its physical features. The size of this box, the Ark, is mentioned in verse 10. It is 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Now, for those of you fishermen who aren't very good at telling exactly how long certain things are, I brought my tape measure for you today. All right, so there's going to be no fibbing on what 45 inches is, okay? 45 inches. I hope everyone can see this. I'll probably lose the camera, but that's all right. Now, I did this the other day. I was in here, and I thought I'd kind of see. This, just for visual, when I'm not holding my tape measure, the Lord's Supper table is probably 48 Okay, so it's about the width, or the length at least, of this table, 45 inches. Now, we know that the 45 inches, if you're a Bible student, or maybe you have a different version in front of you, is actually two and a half cubits. But the CSB helps us out in modern language for modern readers to understand that two and a half cubits would basically equal 45 inches. A cubit was the measurement from the tip of your finger to the inside of your forearm, which Conveniently, it actually is about 18 inches on me. And that is what's used as a standard average for what a cubit was. So 18 times 2.5. All of you very strong math majors know 45 inches. Boom. So that's the length. And then the width was 27. Oh, that's pretty good. I got right to 27. So the width, all right, I'll probably do it like this for you to see. 27 inches wide and then 27 inches tall. And again, for visual reference for you, this is about 30 inches tall, so it's a little long, so a little shorter than this table. And this table would have been not quite wide enough by nine inches, so it would have been wider than the Lord's Supper table up here. All right, so just kind of an idea of the size and picture for us. The size uh, was rather small if you think about the significance of this item, but it also had built into it a, a molding around the top. Uh, the Hebrew word there is zer, Z-E-R, and it was like a collar that would have gone around it. We have no idea what the molding would have looked like. There are some artist renditions of it. I think we have a picture of an ark here that would kind of give you just an ornamental, 
you know, crown molding, if you will. Some of you woodworkers, you know, kind of see and can envision what it might look like. But there was a collar around the top. And then we also learn from texts in verses 12 through 14 that it had feet, rings, and poles. Now, the feet would have helped keep the bottom of the box from uh, uh, being on the ground. So the ark wouldn't have been damaged underneath it. Uh, being built of this acacia wood. Acacia wood was a very strong and a very stable and sturdy wood, but it was also very shapeable. And so they could have carved it exactly the way they wanted to, and then they overlaid it inside and out with pure gold and placed these feet on it to keep it from being uh, scraping against the ground. Like, I have a camphor chest that somebody gave us in our living room, and it has feet on it so that just the bottom of it isn't damaged. But then this was an interesting thing for me as I was studying the physical features of this ark. I often thought, I knew there were carrying poles, right? Okay. Um, Which, by the way, there is no indication whether they ran this way or like railroad tracks with the length of it. It doesn't tell us exactly, but most people envision it like the picture on the screen where it's like the railroad tracks and running the length of it. But I always thought of the poles as um, something that you would reach at your hip, right? And you'd grab it like this to carry it not so fast. It says very clearly in scripture that the rings are attached to the feet. And so you would have bent all the way down to grab the the poles that were left in there and then would have carried it on your shoulders. Um, And and then the, the ark would have sat above people's shoulders as they carried it like this. And uh, the reason for keeping a permanency of the poles would have been to prevent damage or to prevent some of the other things that happen that we'll talk about later in the message, okay, with the ark. So you wouldn't have to have tipped the, the ark this way to take the poles out and somebody has to steady it or anything like that. The poles stayed in their location. So these are some of the physical features that we think about um, of the ark. Then one more important physical feature that I haven't described yet is the cover. I'll talk about the significance of the poles in a minute, and I'll talk about the significance of the cover, but let's just review again. The cover itself would have been 45 by 27, and it was not made out of wood overlaid. It was pure gold, and that gold would have had um, uh, hammered work of angels, cherubs, that their wings touched and covered over the, the the, the cover, and they were bowed down towards the mercy seat. The name of this cover is going to become very important as we consider the significance. For now, I'll just describe it to you. It's the word caporet, a caporet. And this cover would have fit perfectly over the top, and it would have had these two uh, hammerwork gold cherubs that were on it. The cherubs, or the cherubim, would face each other and were bowing down, and they more than likely were what, uh, what we call zoomorphic. That's a big word that means it was kind of a mixture of animal and human and it had the wings. And the reason why I say more than likely is because in Ezekiel and Revelation, when we get a glimpse into heaven and we see God enthroned among the living creatures or the cherubim there, um, they do have these kind of animal qualities as well. And they would have been guarding, so to speak, or protecting uh, God's heavenly throne. So all in all, again, relatively small, but it would have been breathtakingly beautiful, and it was loaded 
with an incredible amount of significance. Okay, so let's spend the majority of our time considering what is the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I didn't list these out as separate slides for you, but I do have kind of parallel phrases if you want to take notes on various items of significance. And the first item of significance is that it was placed first in the building instructions. God says to Moses, build a tabernacle first on the list, build the ark, which is kind of interesting, right? God doesn't begin with build the the tent poles and then we're going to erect this tent and it's going to cover things up and then we're going to work our way into the holiest place. He begins by sharing what is the most significant and the most important part of the Holy of Holies, which was the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his very presence. And then he would work through the various furnishings and then to the tent to follow. So it was placed first in the giving of the instructions. And secondly, it was used to store important objects. I kind of mentioned this in the little illustration at the beginning, but we read about it in verse uh, 16 today, that there, the tablets of the testimony would be put inside. The, the, the testimony were the, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the law of God that was placed on tablets into the Ark of the Covenant. We also find out from the writer of Hebrews that there were other objects that were stored in the ark, like a gold jar containing some of the manna from the wilderness wanderings, and also Aaron's staff that budded. So it was significant because of its placement in the order. It's significant because of what it contained. Thirdly, it was significant because it symbolized God's presence. It symbolized God's presence on earth. So let's take just a brief survey of some Old Testament passages that help us grasp this idea. The book of Numbers tells us something of the ark's significance as a symbol of God's presence in Numbers chapter 10. We see how the people would follow the ark to places of safety in their travels. And then they would expect that God going before them to not only find the place to rest, would also scatter his enemies from before them. So for example, in Numbers chapter 10 and verse 33, we read that they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And then two verses later, whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So it symbolized for the people of Israel God's presence going before them. Uh, The book of Joshua, as we consider the conquest, we know that in the book of Joshua, the ark features prominently in the crossing of the Jordan River and in the battle of Jericho and other places. 1 Samuel records that when the Israelites brought the ark into battle against the Philistines, the Philistines, when they saw the ark come into the camp, said, the gods, they didn't know what they were talking about, but they just knew something about Israel's gods in their mind. The gods that had brought the plagues and the, uh, the distress and the disease and the pestilence in Egypt had come into the Israelite camp. Even they recognized it as a symbol of, of the Israelite God's presence with them. Of course, 1 Samuel also records, if you've studied the Bible, the capture of the ark. And that is a fascinating story. 
As the ark is captured by the Philistines, they place it in their temple with their false god, Dagon. And the next morning, when the Philistines go into the temple, where is Dagon? Face down on the ground, bowing in front of the ark, the symbol of the presence of God. So they, I don't know, they think, well, this must have just been the wind or an accident or something like that. So they prop up their God again. And the next morning when they come in, not only is the God, false God Dagon face down, but his head is cut off and his hands are cut off, which just sounds like a passing comment. But if you really stop to think about it, was a very poignant foreshadowing of a future battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. A battle in which the leader of the Philistines would end up with his head cut off. You know who I'm talking about? We often think about the sling and the stones, but we forget that David went and grabbed Goliath's sword and cut off his head. And so the false god Dagon of the Philistines and then the Philistine leader in battle has his head cut off, which we don't have time to go into the greater narrative of the promise of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But let's just say there was a little head crushing going on with David and Goliath, all of which was kind of in stream with what took place with the ark and Dagon. All right, so this is the capture. So when, when the the Philistines have the ark in their possession, and then this happens two days. They just can't get rid of the ark fast enough. They're like, all right, let's get this thing out of here. And so they send it away back to the Israelites, and it's there kept for 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim. The Philistines are, want nothing to do with it. And then later in 2 Samuel chapter 6, after the defeat of the Philistines, we read that David and all of his troops, uh, in chapter 6 and verse 2, they set out to bring the ark of God from Bel Judah, which is another name for Kiriath Jerim, back into Jerusalem. And the, the ark that bears the name is what it was called the name of the Lord of Armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now let's just pause on that last phrase there, because already, by God's grace, you've heard that phrase a couple times in this service. Brother Jim and I did not coordinate, okay? But as often is the case, um, the Lord has seen fit to include this uh, enthroned among the cherubim theme in our time of worship already. So let's consider this fourth aspect of the significance of the ark. It was referred to as the throne of God, not merely his presence. It was his kingly presence and a representation of his throne that he was enthroned between the cherubim, those two angelic zoomorphic figures that would have been right there. The picture was that God himself sat on his throne there. And because it symbolized God's presence, that's what it was referred to, the throne of God on earth. The psalmist, as we heard in the call to worship, refers to God as the one who is enthroned between the cherubim. Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. If you had not studied the ark this morning, you may not have captured that significance or that reference. But when the Bible refers to God as the one enthroned upon the cherubim, the ark of the covenant was a physical manifestation and representation of what that meant to the Israelites. And if we were to peel back heaven's curtains even today, and to see God's throne, we would see him enthroned above the cherubim. 
That picture is seen, like I said earlier, in Revelation and in Ezekiel. And it was seen in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. The picture of God's presence being guarded by cherubim, that even harkens us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When the two cherubim guarded the way back to the tree of life with flaming swords to keep the, uh, Adam and Eve and, uh, and anyone else from coming into the place where God's presence would dwell. You see, the throne of God being symbolically guarded by cherubim and being typically, as it were, isolated in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle indicates something to us. God is scarcely approachable by sinful people. God is scarcely approachable by sinful people. Now, it's for that reason that Uzzah should have known better than to do what he had done while attempting to transport the ark back to Jerusalem from Kiriath-Jerim. We can read in 2 Samuel 6 to help refresh your memory, or maybe you have not studied this passage before, but let's see what happens when they're trying to transport the ark in a way that wasn't appointed by God. 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. First of all, they should have never put the ark on a cart to be transported that way. If they had read Exodus 25, they would have known. It has carrying poles. They were copycatting the way the Philistines had sent the ark back to them. Remember, they put it on the, on the cart, and then they put the two uh, cows, the heifers that hadn't, you know, they're, they're waiting for their young, and they're calling them back, and they're like, if they go, then we'll trust that that's their God taking them there. So they put it on the cart, but the Israelites should have known better. They should have used the apparatus that God intended, the carrying poles. And secondly, when the oxen stumbled... Uzzah should not have reached out his hand to touch the ark because it was the throne of God and it was never intended to have been approached casually. You see, this leads to another and perhaps one of the most significant and most important aspects of the ark. It was a place for God and man to meet on his terms. It was a place for God and man to meet but on his terms. God makes it clear in verse 22 that it was a place to meet. He says in verse 22, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. Now again, just thinking in perspective of what this means, it's a remarkable verse. That God, the holy God, that was being guarded from the presence of sinful man, 
was going to intend to use this as a place to meet with sinners. He promised to speak with man from above the ark. To put it very straightforwardly, the ark is where holy God and sinful man met. But it was only possible because of sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, on the cover. I'd mentioned we'd consider more of the significance of that cover, and now is the time. That Hebrew word again is kaporet, K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T, kaporet. Walter Kaiser in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says that kaporet, or atonement, is rendered in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as hilasterion, which is our English word. We get the word propitiatory. You've also heard that word. I'm going to explain it in a moment, but I'm just going to keep reading for now. In the Vulgate, the Latin translation, it's propitiatorium. The basic root of this word, caparet, means to make atonement, which the verbal idea would be to ransom or deliver by offering a substitute. That's one commentary. Another commentator says the root word, just to help get different perspectives. If that, that was a lot of mumbo-jumbo to you, maybe this one helps. The concept of a caporet is the idea of atonement or reconciliation, the process of causing people to be true friends, allies, kin, and not distant, hostile, or at odds. It's bringing together through sacrifice. Now, I love big words. I truly do. I, but I try not to use big words unless they're Bible words and unless they're totally necessary. So if we were just talking about big words on their own, I might say that you might think it's quixotic for me to have a love for big words. Um, but one of the per- perquisites, is that the right word? The perquisites of reading for the love of God every day is that there is a quotidian supply of these kinds of large vocabulary words that cause me to go to my dictionary. Now, I'm looking across the room, and the few people that are chuckling I know have been reading for the love of God, volume two, that the elders have recommended with their Bible reading plan, because D.A. Carson loves $10 words, okay? That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to throw in quotidian into the message, But the Bible word propitiation is still a big word, but it's a necessary word. So even the children in here, you need to pay attention to what propitiation means. And I'm going to do my level best to help us understand it. To propitiate, the verb of that same noun, means to regain someone's favor or to appease. And so the noun propitiation refers to pacifying a person or a deity uh, by sometimes by sacrifice that brings about reconciliation. Now, I prefer a simpler definition than all these definitions I've found. I prefer to think of it as satisfying God's just wrath. That God would be justly angry for our sin and could punish us for our sin A propitiation is something that satisfies God's wrath towards sin. The satisfaction of God's wrath. When Camilla and I were talking in the week and and I mentioned that I was going to be trying to define this big word and I said what it was and she she did this. Is is this thing, is it a cover sort of that kind of 
protects us from God's wrath. And yeah, it's a cover, which is another aspect of this whole thing. As you're thinking about the ark, remember the box and remember what the caporet is. It's a cover. Well, what is it covering? What's inside? The law of God. So let's just imagine mini, mini me, mini Pastor Jason, 26 inches tall, inside of the ark with the law of God, okay? I'm standing beside the tablets inside the ark of the covenant. And that law of God condemns me as a sinner, doesn't it? We've studied the Ten Commandments together. And so if you weren't here, just remember, you, you don't have to study the whole Ten Commandments series. We just need to ask, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? All right? And we go through, have we ever taken God's name in vain? And when we consider ourselves in light of God's law that's inside this ark, we are guilty. We deserve God's punishment. And guess who is enthroned right above our heads? Are you with me? I'm inside the ark with the law of God that condemns me as a sinner. And right above me is the very presence of the holy God. And I deserve his punishment. What will protect me? What will keep me from God's wrath? A caporet. A cover. A propitiation. And that propitiation satisfies God's wrath, not because it's just there, but because it's sprinkled with the blood of a spotless lamb. It's been sprinkled with the blood of a lamb. And on Yom Kippur, now that word Yom in Hebrew means day, and Kippur has the same kaporet, same vowels in Hebrew, or same, yeah, same consonants in Hebrew, kaporet, Kippur. You can hear the similarities. On the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would enter by the blood of a spotless lamb, and he would enter according to the rules of Leviticus 16, and blood would be sprinkled on that cover, and that would be the place where mercy is found. We refer to something, when we say the seat of power, we don't mean a chair, you know, sometimes it could be like you're the chairperson or you're the president and you've got a seat, but we don't mean that. The seat of power is the location where power is held. And so the mercy seat is not a physical chair. It is the place or the location where mercy is found. And so where we are as sinners condemned by the law of God, under God's just punishment for sin, there is a cover and a place where mercy is found by blood. And so if you have followed along with what this cover, this caporet, this propitiation is about, then you can understand this object lesson is pointing us to the most significant part of the Ark of the Covenant. That is, the Ark of the Covenant points us to the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. That is why we would take time to study the dimensions and the makeup of a box in the Old Testament. It is so much more significant than that. It points us to the place where the propitiatory work of Jesus is found on the cross. And I said, I can't avoid that word because it's a Bible word. You see, the cross is ultimately where God and sinners meet. 
where God and sinners meet is the location of God's mercy for sin. It was the work of the priestly ministers, the sacrifices, the atoning blood, and the Ark of the Covenant were all pointing to. That was why they existed. And as scripture unfolded from the Old Testament to the New, we see that these very real and very physical objects were all pointing to a far greater heavenly reality. And so Christ's work and provision of salvation are described with terms like what was happening at the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant year after year. So in the New Testament, when you come to Hebrews 2.17, hopefully the object lesson of the Ark of the Covenant begins to make sense of the verse. We read, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God send Jesus? 1 John 4.10's answer is, God sent his son to be the caporet for our sins. The location where mercy is found, covered with blood, for our sins. The wrath satisfaction for our sins. And then one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, again, Brother Jim was reading my mail this week or something, because Romans 3, 23 through 25, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what happens when we see ourselves in light of God's law. And we are justified by God's grace as a gift, the Bible says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews tells us, was never meant to fully and finally pay for sin. It was intended to point us to the full and final payment of sin so that God can be just for all the sins he forgave in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus for all who will put their faith in the blood shed by Jesus at the place where mercy is found, the cross. Brothers and sisters, it is one thing to think of or read a technical definition of propitiation and try and piece together what John and Paul and the author of Hebrews are saying about the word. It's a totally different thing to think of the Ark of the Covenant and the high priest's ministry and the blood that was shed on the mercy seat, the caporet, and understand that the place where God would meet with unworthy and sinful men was there. And it foreshadowed the cross, the place where God and sin, sinners like us, could meet. It's an object lesson. The Ark of the Covenant is like none other. God gave his people and has given us a picture of what it takes for us to approach a holy God. It takes the shed blood of a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And that sacrifice was made by Jesus Christ 
on a cross, on a hill called Golgotha, nearly 2,000 years ago. If Jesus had not shed his perfect and spotless blood, there would be no reconciliation between God and man. There would be no peace with God. And so we learn of Christ. We learn of the cross when we study the ark and the mercy seat. And it leads me in close to a great and a probing question for every single individual here today. Have you met with God in the place that God has designated for sinful mankind to meet with a holy God? Have you met with God at the mercy seat? Have you met with God at the cross? I encourage you, if you've not come to the cross of Jesus and his blood shed for your sins, I invite you to repent of your sins today and place your faith in the work that he did at Calvary for us to be reconciled to him.